So as we get to these final two chapters of the book of Joshua, oh, there's so much here. Matter of fact, I'm still reeling from chapter 22. Still, there's, I feel like there's five more sermons in chapter 22. And as we look at 23, I want you to understand that these last two chapters are so much more than simply the final two chapters of this Old Testament book. Like I told you a couple weeks ago, these last three chapters are just so pivotal and so filled with such amazing truth and so much that God wants to teach us. And we come to the final words of this amazing leader, Joshua, and his final words, they exhort and encourage and warn the Israelites to remain faithful to God who has remained faithful to them. Now, if you refresh your memory back to Joshua chapter 1 and even the very end of Deuteronomy, you, you, you know that the, the message was very clear. Joshua's, uh, the message he received and the message he gave to God's people was to be strong and to be courageous, to be strong and to be courageous. And they were to, because they were going into a season of, of battle, they were going into a season of, of continual war. But now... As he is about to pass from this life to the next, you got to understand, these are the words of a man who has lived a long time and who has seen many, many things. These, this is a, a person who is now a hundred years old. And understand chronologically that from the time we crossed the Jordan, and went to battle with Jericho, there's, there's about five, six years of continual warfare that's leading up to uh, the, the conquest of Canaan. Now, the end of Joshua doesn't just come at the end of that. What happens is, is that there's five or six years of war, and then Joshua is there in Canaan with the people for over a decade that there's there's a long span of time and then we pick up these last chapters and so they've had a long time of peace they've had a long time to sort of settle in to the promised land and God's not in a hurry in doing the things that uh, he desires to do and so Joshua has lingered around and been able to see the the people of God flourishing in their uh, in their new home and so as we think about this leader and his final words, you know, most leaders, great leaders, even, even spiritual leaders that God's used, if you listen to their final words, their farewell speech, if you will, the normal tendency for people to use that moment to do would be to reminisce about their accomplishments and the hope that their accomplishments are not forgotten. Joshua does something very different. Instead of the concern being that his accomplishments aren't forgotten, Joshua's concern is that God may not be forgotten. Joshua is the ultimate Christ-centered leader. He is so uh, just... he he. He's constantly pushing the spotlight off of himself, although he can't help but be in the spotlight. He's constantly shifting 
the, the gaze of God's people onto the Lord and not onto Him. But you can tell by the things that He says that He has a deep concern. All through last week uh, in chapter 22, 23, 24, He has a, a deep concern. And that's that Israel would not become complacent and forsake God and get tangled up in the pagan worship of the Canaanite people that surrounded them. Now, the other thing you have to remember is that when we're talking about Israel and we're talking about the the land in which the 12 tribes of Israel have sort of made their new home or the nine and a half tribes because two and a half tribes are across the way. You're talking about a, a, a piece of land that's about the size of Connecticut that you can drive across east to west in about an hour. Uh, lengthwise, north to south, it's going to take you about three hours. But a very small, tiny piece of land, especially to a, an American mindset, that to imagine one little plot of land the size of a state filled with, with you know, nations of people is just beyond our sort of comprehension but you know there when the bible speaks of the nations it's often talking about the cities cities were nations but it's a very small area and so as the people settle into Canaan there's still all these uh, unbelieving pagan nations all around them across the border in every direction which is the exact situation that Israel's in today right? Every direction, there's a, there's a foe, right? On this little dot of, of real estate called Israel. And so his concern is that they're going to forsake God and get tangled up in Canaanite worship. So here's the principle. The principle is because Look at what these people have been through. Look at the leadership that they've had. Look at the success that they've had. I mean, it's overwhelming. And yet, we have to remember that no matter how godly and devoted one generation may be, there's always risk for the next. What you never want to be in a situation to do is to presume upon God's faithfulness in the next generation. You can never take your eye off the coming generation, which is something that we are very devoted to here. And you know that. And it can even be to the point where sometimes, you know, people get a little bit frustrated with me. And that's okay. I understand. I'm not going to change, but I understand. That we, as so long as I'm in the position that I'm in, we will continually devote and give our best to the development and the discipleship of the generations to come. That is the biblical principle, and you have to understand that. It's very, very important. And we can never assume that because God's doing great things today, that He's going to do great things tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. And when you see tonight what happens when you take your eye off the wheel, so to speak, when you begin to just coast, it's very problematic. See, Joshua was fearful. He really was fearful that the generations following his death 
would depart from the faith. And you know what? His fears were justified. Because that's exactly what happened. And I used to be, uh, I used to be critical of Joshua. Because when I read this text in, in Judges chapter 2, uh, it, it used to uh, strike me as a failure on Joshua's part to equip the next generation. But let's read closely at what ends up happening. In Judges chapter 2, here's a description. When Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to their own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord. Notice. All the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord of the Lord which had been done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnah-Herez in the mountains of Ephraim. And on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all the generations had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which He had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and they served Baal and the Asherists. Now, that's what happened. So what exactly is Judges chapter 2 describing? Well, the situation is this. It wasn't that the people of Israel denied the existence of God or questioned whether or not He had truly done all the mighty miracles that we've seen in Joshua. That's not the problem. They simply regarded Him as irrelevant for their lives. You see, what happens is, is that the people of God enter into a time of peace. They go from a time of war, 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 year after year after year. And then they go into a season of peace. And they go into a season of of basic prosperity, but it's definitely a season of, of, you know, good living and prospering, and God becomes irrelevant. Now understand, what the Bible's saying is not that they're ignorant of what God's done. Their problem's not, it's, it's not ignorance, it's irrelevance. Now how do I know it's not ignorance? Because the Bible says that through the time of Joshua and through the time of those who followed Joshua, the elders, the children of God served the Lord in every way. They were faithful in serving God. It wasn't that they didn't serve God. It wasn't that they didn't believe God. It's not unbelief. It's just apathy. So here's a very important principle. How, what is the key to making sure that this doesn't happen? There is, there is one biblical principle that you find throughout all of Scripture that applies to God's people. It applies to every church. It applies to every family. And it applies to every follower. How do you prevent yourself personally from falling into a Judges chapter 2 situation? And there's a one key. 
to remaining faithful to God, and that is dependence. Dependence. You see, so long as you're dependent upon God, presumption won't exist. Irrelevance won't be a problem. Apathy won't be a problem. You know why? You know why it wasn't a problem for all the years they were at war? Because they were utterly dependent upon God. If you think back on a time in your life when you strayed away from God, when you uh, began to make decisions that you regret now. It was a dark season spiritually for you. If you think back to that season, one thing you'll notice about that season is that you lack dependence on God. Whereas if you think of a time in your past when you were most on fire for God, what, what was sort of cultivating that fire was dependence. Dependence. Now, when I say dependence versus presumption, you see, you, you can think about it like dependence is a, is a, is a model of, of faith. It's an evidence of faith. Presumption is a model of pride. It's, it's an issue of control. It's an issue of we, we, God becomes irrelevant when we feel like we're capable of doing things on our own or when we just get bored. Now, it's an important concept, especially here among us in this faith family. Because you, you no doubt, all of you in the room tonight, no doubt, understand that this is in many ways a hard place to go to church. And by hard, I mean that if you get bored here, then you're blind. I mean, how could you possibly get bored? Because there's there's so many things going on all the time. And I don't mean activities. I'm talking about hard things. Like we're always climbing a mountain. And when we get to the top of a mountain, usually by the time we get to the top of one mountain, we've already begun climbing another mountain. It's not like we rest a while and climb another one. We're most of the time, this particular time in our, in our fellowship's history, we're climbing multiple mountains at the same time. And you say to yourself, well, well, well why is that? Well, first of all, a church with people in it that are bored has leadership that's not listening to the Lord. You understand? I want you to think with me for a second about something. Because sometimes you may wrongly think that I just purposely try to make it hard for us, which is ridiculous because if it's hard for you, it's ten times harder for me. So why would I be doing that? If anybody around here would like to coast a while, it would be me. But that's not an option. Now, think of every leader in Scripture. Every leader. And how did God lead the leaders in Scripture? Old Testament, New Testament. How did God lead those leaders to lead people? Every leader who listens to God hears a message from God to lead the people of God to do things that they don't think they can do. The role of God's people, because the way God works in a, in a people is through to keep us where we need to be, to grow in sanctification, it's all about dependence. You see, as soon as we, as soon as we start doing things we can do, all sorts of problems are going to erupt. 
You never, ever want to be in a situation where you're bored. That is a very dangerous situation to be in. Very dangerous. God leads His people to do things they do not think they can do by design. It is a faith-building exercise. It is a protective measure. It's always there. You don't want to be in a place personally where you feel like you're doing something you can do spiritually. You want to wake up every day and know that you're engaged in something that is hard. I mean, it sounds so simple and yet counterintuitive. Spiritually speaking, hard things. God has called us to do hard things. That's, that's, that's our nourishment. That's what grows us. That's just how the kingdom operates. So here's what Joshua does. He has this fear. We've seen from Judges chapter 2 that it's a founded fear. Now, remember, he doesn't, Joshua 2 hasn't been written yet when Joshua says these words. So Joshua... I don't think God told Joshua, because the Bible doesn't say God told Joshua that the people were going were, were gonna to sway off into uh, pagan worship. Joshua just, he, he understands. He sees these people. He lives among them. He's led them for all these years. He knows their tendencies. And his concern is if they're going to get off track, it's going to be here. And so this is what he does. He's going to give this threefold approach that is so practical for you and me tonight to preventing apostasy in future generations which is straying from the faith to preventing apostasy in current generation i mean this is a this is a, a three-step sort of guard against drifting so good number one Step number one, you got to remember the past. Now that sounds so, so I mean, how many times have, have we had this conversation? But every time, it's over and over, but yet God gives us a new sort of way to, to understand it. Remember the past, Joshua 23, look beginning in verse 3 on your handout. The scripture says, you have seen, Joshua saying to them, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you the, by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance to your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. Now, Joshua's urgent plea to the people is to recall God's goodness and His faithfulness on their behalf. He's telling them, listen, you have been very blessed, but the way you've been blessed is because God has fought for you. You, you didn't win because of your great uh, you know, military prowess. In fact... Every nation in Canaan that the Israelites went against were far superior militarily than they were. you got to understand. I mean, you, you really got to try to get your head around this. 
It's not just the great walls of Jericho. It's every battle. It's, it's even when they go to Ai and get whipped because of Achan's sin. Ai has lower numbers, not that many people. Joshua just sends a small contingency of men up there. But still, the men there have weaponry, have skills that the children of Israel don't have. Listen, these are a bunch of nomad sort of, you know, just homemakers and, and, and family people. They're, 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 they're all ex-slaves who have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, while they're wandering in the wilderness, except apart from their few uh, battles that God taught them to win in Bashan and up in the northern provinces, the rest of the time they're just wandering around they're all, they're all just a bunch of shepherds. And so they're going into battle and against people who have iron, you know, they have iron javelins and swords and chariots. And you, you know what they've got? The Israelites have clay pots and spatulas and, you know, nothing. Nothing. They, they're, not, they're not some great military, yet they... The only way to account for their military dominance, and it was utter dominance. Historically speaking, there's been no group of people that militarily held a... No one has ever... Every military record in world history is held and will never be broken by the children of Israel. You understand what I mean? There's never been a nation. Listen, I don't, it doesn't matter who it is. It's Alexander the Great might have been successful. He didn't hold a candle. Listen, Alexander the Great, he, he marched across the world. He also had the biggest, largest, greatest defense on the planet. I mean, basically, he was just a giant bully. Yes, he was a great military mind, but he had the upper hand in every battle he went into. Never historically in the world has there ever been a people group that was the absolute utter by a mile underdog in every single battle, yet they smoked everybody. Everybody. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. The only way to explain any of that is the power of God. I mean, it's a bunch of shepherds, honestly. When the Bible says the fighting men among you to talking about the Israelites, you know what that's talking about? That doesn't mean that, that they were great. It just means that they were of fighting age and they were men and they were healthy. That's all that means. Their, their forces were just people who were able. That's it. And what Joshua wants them to know is somehow... You know, in every situation, if you just think about it long enough, somehow sin is almost always the fruit of forgetting. In the child of God, sin is the fruit of forgetting. No matter what the sin, no matter what the situation, somewhere along the line, you or I have 
forgotten all that God has done in the past. And it's, begun, it's opened the door for us to step out and to begin to feel confident on our own two feet. To feel less dependence on God. To feel, feel this uh, ability to get out and to, to test the waters and other things. And ends up a disaster. See, when we forget our former condition, we forget how dependent we, we are on God. And the utter mess we make of our lives when we're in control. See, my, my, my message is very simple. I mean, I am utterly convinced that when you or I, all we need to do is simply stay connected to the reality of who we were before Jesus Christ became our Savior. Before God saved us, who were we and how did we get there and how was that going? That's all you got to do. And the danger is, is that the longer you live and the further you're separated from that, the easier it is for you to sort of get things twisted around. It's sort of the way, you know, guys, once they pass 40 years of age, they lose touch with reality. And every guy over 40 somehow was a, an unbelievable athlete in high school. You ever sit around a, a room full of old guys and you're like, I, everybody in here wasn't, wasn't a great athlete. That just didn't happen. There were a bunch of you that, you know, were in the band and the rest of you were on the bench. But when you get old, you think back and you lose touch with reality. Well, let me tell you something. Spiritually, you need to stay really connected to See, I love talking to people who are an absolute disaster. I love that. Because it's very, it makes evangelism very simple. So, you want to have a conversation about God? Let's have a conversation about God. So, I'm proposing that you, uh, the only chance that you have is if God in His grace and mercy saves you and becomes your Lord and takes responsibility for all the chaos that's going on in your life. Otherwise, we could look at, for a few moments, how everything's going with you in charge. How's it working out for you? Is that the path you want to stay on? Well, no. Well, okay, so what do you think the solution is? Because we know the definition of insanity is keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. So here's the thing, like, you know, my, 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 my momentary brushes with unbelief, you know what just obliterates them? I just drop a stick of dynamite right into the middle of my... About the time I start feeling like, hey, yeah, I got this, I just, all I have to do is think one second about... The 25-year-old Tony, and I'm like, whoo-hoo, oh no, oh no, I don't want any part of that. No. Mm -mm. I bungled it up so bad, I don't ever want to go back to Tony's way. It is a catastrophe. You don't want to go back to your way. And I'm telling you, it's remembering. It's remembering. Just remember who you were six months before God saved you. You know, it, you may not have been as bad as me. 
Maybe you were worse than me. Maybe you were like Rod. But here's the thing. No matter who you were, you want that? You want that? You want that pre-Christ life? You got to stay close. Here's what David says in Psalm 44. Look at this passage. He says, We've heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds that you did in their days. In days of old, you drove out the nations with your hand. But them you planted. You afflicted the people and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. It's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing to remember. So we, first of all, remember the past. Number two, we remember and then we have responsibility in the present. So Joshua says, now let's don't think that we got here because of you. Let's stay remember that God's the one that got us here. Then he shifts gears in verse 6 and look at what he says. Therefore, be very courageous. Now, remember I said, he said, now we're going, to be, we're going to be strong and we're going to be courageous because we're going to war. Now, look at how the message shifts. Therefore, be very courageous, not because we're going to fight, but to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. You see, the new, that now there's a new courageous he's calling for, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. You shall not make mention. Of the name of their gods. You know, he says, lest you among these nations, those who remain among you, don't even mention the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them or bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. Now look at what he says. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you and he, as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Whew. A bunch of nomad, clay pot toting shepherds. But with God on your side, one man chases a thousand. As they marched across Canaan, the Canaanites heard, heard these stories. The stories of them blowing trumpets and walls crumbling down. What do you think happened when people, when, when people heard the story of the sun standing still? As the people of God are finishing the work that God's called them to do or the, or the giant hailstones that rained down upon the, the, the three armies, the nations that had gathered together against the children of Israel. You want to tangle with those people? <laughs> I mean, no, you don't. They're, they're, and no one, is, no one is, is looking at that going, wow, they're amazing fighters. They're all looking at that going, the God that they serve is so fearful. You never, ever want to find yourself on the wrong end of that stick, ever. You see, the point of remembering in the past 
is to provide us with incentive and encouragement for responsible living in the present. You see, that remembering is going to bring about a reality that's going to make me responsible today. Now, notice how he, he's going to, he breaks this down in these verses, beginning in verse 6. He's going to give us these four ways that we are responsible today, okay? Now, it just so happens that all four of them begin with an A, so it works out really great for me, but four ways. So in the present, here's the four ways that we're responsible in the present according to what Joshua says. And here's the thing. It's just right there in the text. The first way is attention. So today in your life, tomorrow, the next day, every day, your present life, your responsibility. You say, well, what is my responsibility in the present? Number one, attention. You are to pay attention. Give attention to what? To the Word of God. Now watch how this works in verse 6. He says, Be courageous to keep all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or the left. Okay, let me just sort of set this out for you because you're thinking, well, well, you know, some of you may be thinking, well, that's obvious that you need to pay attention to the Word of God. And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, but isn't that just uh, to be expected? Or, Well, no, listen. Think about this. God never blesses disobedience. Never. And when I say God never blesses disobedience, well, then how do we define disobedience? We define disobedience not by what you think is disobedient, not what I think is disobedience. The only way to define something as disobedience is it goes against the Word of God. If you don't pay attention to the Word of God, you don't know what disobedience is. You're just guessing. You're just making something up. There's all sorts of people running around who have decided some things are, are obedience and other things are disobedience. And they're wrong on all sorts of cases because that's not what God's Word says. So disobedience is defined and only defined in the pages of Scripture. So a mind that is filled with Scripture can critically evaluate the secular society around them and see through the empty values of the modern world and therefore resist temptation. You see, how do you propose that a person is going to resist temptation in the world? How do you propose that a person is going to avoid disobedience and how is a person going to gain the blessing of God through obedience? If you don't pay attention to the Word of God, you don't have any grid. You don't have any filter in which to evaluate. So when all these things come into your life, all these opportunities, all these temptations, all these people saying, well, hey, why don't you come with me and do this? Or why don't you try this? Or why don't you do this? And you got people who go to church who are saying, hey, well, me and my family, we did this. Or me and my wife, we did this. Or we did that. And you should try this. And you should. And listen, you shouldn't believe, you shouldn't do something because somebody who goes to church said that. You shouldn't do something because somebody you know did something. You should use the Word of God. If you're listening to people, I don't care how spiritual you think they are you're going to get in trouble because there's a lot of people pretending to be something that they're not doing all sorts of things they shouldn't do and what's going to happen you're going to wake up one day and go how in the world did I get here it's because you're listening to the wrong voice everything has to go back to something there's got to be some plumb line some basis to to know what you should or should not do 
So the warning, let's say clear, unmistakable warning sign of impending abandonment or apostasy is a diminishing respect for the authority of God's word every single time. If I had a nickel for every time I've had this conversation with the staff, they're telling me some story about somebody. They're telling me what's going on in some situation. Or I'm telling them we're talking about something. And every time, every time, when I hear some person or some group of people or some church or whatever it is, and suddenly there's, there's this diminishing respect for the authority of God's Word. In other words, people start saying things like, well, that's not exactly what it says, or that's not what God really means, or, you know, that was then, and the way you apply this now. And when I hear those phrases, I know trouble is coming. Guaranteed, every time. Every single time. Now, let's just think for one second. When we don't keep... All that God's word commanded, as Joshua says, we ought to be courageous and do. Then, so what does that mean? We're just going to think like a, you know, are you smarter than a fifth grader? If, if we don't keep all that God's word commands, then what must be true is we're keeping some of what God's word commands, right? Now, the question is, what some are we keeping? And the answer is, the sum that we like or the sum that we want to keep. What happens is the minute you replace all with any other word, the word that you replace it with has to point to that we're now picking and choosing certain things we're going to obey and not obey, right? And as soon as we start picking things, then who now is in a position of authority? The person choosing. Because, see, God chose what he wanted to put in Scripture. He didn't put everything in Scripture, but he chose what he wanted to put in Scripture. And now we're choosing which parts we like and don't like. And so we're trying to supplant God's authority with our own authority. And we're trying to say that we somehow know better. See, when we're determining and following what we like, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble. So a disregard for biblical inspiration and authority is always the first step towards spiritual rebellion. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed at how many people come and visit here and for a week or two or something and you know, then they're, they don't like it. They leave. And one of the conversations that I have repeatedly is, is that oftentimes you hear me on Sunday mornings very clearly say before I preach, God, we thank you for your perfect, inspired word. It's perfect. And it's inspired. And it's inerrant. And people do not like inerrancy. They don't like that. And they don't want to go to a church where a pastor believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. And guess what? The pastor doesn't want them to go to his church. I'm telling you. Because I'm 
If the Bible is not inerrant, then I'm done. It's over. I'm out. What are, we're wasting our time. If it's not inspired, then what are we doing? We might as well go to Barnes & Noble and get some self-help stuff and just have some TED Talks and pep ourselves up. Right? My life is devoted to the inspiration of the Word of God. Every jot and tittle, every page, every sentence, every, everything, all of it, everywhere, every book, every time, that's it. Period. People don't like that. Why? Because they know what that's going to lead to. They know that's going to put them in a precarious situation. They know that they don't like that because there's things that they want to do that they know that somebody that believes in the inerrancy of the Bible is going to take them to task on. Because they want to do things their way. Guarantee you every time, 100% of the time, it won't be tomorrow, it may not be next week, it will lead to disaster every time. Every time. So we got to give attention to the Word of God. Number two, we got to avoid. Attention, avoid. we got to avoid pagan influences because they're coming at you from every direction. Verse 7 says, Lest you go among these nations, Joshua says, These who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them or bow down to them. Now, here's, here's the thing. Joshua knows because God knows. God knows that that these pagan gods around them, they're, 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 they're a potential problem. And here's why. Can they do the things that God can do? Well, no. They're not even real gods. But since when does that matter to humanity? See, think with me for a second. We're created in the image of God. And we're created... To be greatly impacted by what surrounds us. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools is destroyed, right? So that means what's around you, it impacts you. It affects you. It influences you. So by design, God made us influenceable. That's by design. You know why that is? Because that's how we grow. We grow in community. We don't grow on our own. We grow in community. That's why, that's why we join community. That's, why, that's how you become. You cannot become a multiplier solo. That's impossible. The plan of God is to know God, to get in community, to begin to multiply, and then to make Him known. It's so simple, right? So, so think about it. Why did God make it? Well, that's how we grow. Well, first of all, because we're made in the image of God, and God's a community God. You know that. He's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right, together. So this triune God that lives in perfect community wants us to live in community. So we're made to be influenceable for good. But everything that's good can be twisted around and perverted and used for bad, right? Every good gift can be a curse, so we can be thankful to God for giving us Oreo cookies or we can eat three packs of them and then it's not so good. And so it's good that you're influenceable. That's how God made us. That's good. But what if it goes bad? What if you, instead of harnessing the power of that truth, you suffer 
against the power of it. So this is what this is so confusing to a lot of people. I hope this will help you. There's two inalienable truths that balance out, okay? That are they're inseparable. They they bond together the understanding of this. And here they are. The first one is the solution is not isolation. I cannot stress this enough. We're influenceable. We're, we're born to, to grow in community. So the, the wrong thing to do, the way to not fall into the worship of pagan gods is never to isolate. Now, in the flesh, that makes sense. What do we do if we don't want to get, oh, well, we don't want to get tangled up in all these worldly things, so we isolate ourselves. It seems logical, but it doesn't work in the economy of God. Isolation is always the wrong response. The other, okay, so it's not isolation, but the danger is assimilation. So these two things balance out. The solution's not isolation. The danger is assimilation. The danger is that we will assimilate ourselves into the pagan world around us. Now, the world is going to work real hard to get us to do that. But you got to understand something. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how committed you are. Listen, if your dependence meter goes down, you're going to become vulnerable to that. Because here's, here, here, listen, let's just be honest. Let's look around the world in which we live in. You're barraged continually by these messages that are telling you things. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter if the pagan God doesn't have any authority or power and can't hold a candle to the real God? Since when has that been an issue? You watch television lately? You seen all the beer commercials? I mean, you watch TV and the message is clear. If you drink beer... You're going to spend your life on the beach surrounded by people in bikinis. Everybody's going to be happy. It's going to be wonderful. Life is like a big vacation. All because we're drinking the right beer. And, And now, beer has no capacity to accomplish any of those things. And only the capacity to diminish and hurt. And yet, millions upon millions of people... Buy it all the time, right? So don't ever think that the futility of the pagan God has anything to do with it. Oh, no. Our capacity to follow futile, worthless gods is is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Now, Paul writes the book of Romans to the church at Rome, right? And if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that it's just the highest possible mark of of theological thought. And when he gets to Romans chapter 12, this very familiar verse, I want you to look at this verse with me. He says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, right? Now let's think about this for a second. Is there any possible way that Paul is saying to an unbeliever 
I beseech you, present yourself a living sacrifice. Is that possible on any level? It's impossible. It's impossible. Would he say that to anyone who wasn't even remotely committed to the, to, to the service and honor of God? Present yourself a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service, right? The Apostle Paul is clearly talking to people who are Christians, who are people who ought to be giving themselves as living sacrifices, right? You agree? The very next statement out of his mouth to people who have the potential to be living sacrifices is, be not conformed. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what, what, so just think with me for one second. That ought to strike you as such a, a warning tonight. In one breath, he says, present yourself a living sacrifice. In the very next verse, he says, beware. You have the unbelievable capacity to conform yourself to the world around you. He went from living sacrifice to conforming yourself to the dead, dying, lost world. You and me could do that in 10 minutes if we're not careful. Just get bored and see what happens. Just start going through the motions and see what happens. And see what starts creeping into your life. See what starts happening. Go to sleep at the wheel. Listen, the danger is assimilation. The solution is not isolation. No. Listen, Paul, here's what he says. You, not attach, hold on. You, he's teaching in Romans 12 that Well, it's missing. He's teaching in Romans 12 that the answer is we must learn to live on the frontier between two extremes. And here's the frontier. To be in the world and not of the world. Right? Now listen to me. I know that we have this thing where we think to ourselves, now what we need to do is we just need to, we need to run away and don't, if, we don't, if we don't let anything from the world come around us or touch us, we'll be fine. The problem with that is it's totally unbiblical and completely anti-Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 17, I do not pray. When he prays to the Father for me and you, he says, I do not pray, Father, that you should take them out of the world. You could take them out of the world, but I pray that you don't take them out of the world. I want you to leave them in the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So the, the answer is, is that we don't isolate but we don't assimilate. So now, let's just for a second think this through. So the day God saves us, we're, our, our, the old man is crucified. The, we've been, the old self has been crucified. And we've been raised to new life, right? With resurrection power. And that new life is for what purpose? To be sent to go and set other people free. That's the whole point. You can't do that if you isolate yourself. 
So I always tell people, they're, they're always struggling with this. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to tell. How do you tell the difference? Or they're talking about their kids and they're like, I don't know if my kid is, you know, I don't, I don't know if they're, I mean, I want them to be evangelizing and I want them to be, you know, engaged in things, but I don't want them to be, I don't want them to assimilate. So how do I tell? Well, this is my theory. My theory is, is that so long as you see in somebody a willingness to be, to be weird, they're fine. It's the truth. What you want to do is you, you want to be the kind of person is, I don't care what other people think about me. If you think I'm weird, fine. I know I'm weird. That's okay. I embrace my weirdness. If lost people don't think I'm weird, something's wrong with me. Right? But here's the thing. I don't... I'm. The goal, I'm the one influencing them. They're not influencing me. And so the way that I know they're not influencing me is I'm not trying to be unweird to them. When you start trying to be unweird to people, that's when you're going to get in trouble. Because listen, they're going to think you're weird. Because you are. You are. But it's okay. So see, you know, the, the danger in that, in that pendulum is always people-pleasing. If, if, you're, if you're a slave to the opinion of man, you're going to be in trouble. All right, so you pay attention to God's word. You avoid pagan influences. Number three, you attach yourself to God. you got to attach. Attach. Look at what he says in verse 8. But you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done this day. That word hold fast, that's the same Old Testament word that's translated in Genesis, cleave. When a man leaves his mom and dad and cleaves to his wife, same word, cleaving. Man, it is a strong word to hold fast. So what does it mean to hold fast, to attach yourself? Well, I would say this. Number one, to stay close to him so that sin can't get between you. You hold fast. You cleave to God. You don't, you don't let space come in. Strategically. Plan for time alone with God. See, closeness is very much connected to alone time. Not busyness, alone time. There's got to be alone time. You got to have time where you just, it's just you and the Lord, where there's not other things banging on your head and trying to break in. You trust His promises, seek His favor. Care only for his approval. Not the approval of men, but the approval of him. It's what God thinks that matters. This is why it's so important to, to have your identity founded in uh, the Bible, founded in Christ. It's, it's all who you are is who you are in Christ. Who you are is what the Bible says you are. It's not what other people say. It's not what you feel like. It's not what you have been told you are. Not, none of that's true. You are what God says is true about you. And so you need to know that. You need to hold on to that. You need to remember that. You need to have these fighter verses memorized in your head that remind you of who you are. So that when trouble comes, when you feel intimidated or fearful, what are you doing? I mean, the, the, you know, my, my automatic response to, 
to just feeling overwhelmed or feeling, you know, embattled or feeling vulnerable or feeling fragile or feel my automatic response is I just I'm reaching immediately for the scripture. I mean, I've been there have been times where I've hung up the phone and a very from a very difficult phone call, pulled off the side of the road and just sat on the side of the road, opened up my Bible because I can't even go to where I'm going. I got to stop right there and open up the scripture. And I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded that I'm more than a conqueror. I need to be reminded that, that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I need to be reminded that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might be the righteousness of Christ in Him. I need to be reminded of that. If I can't get to the Scripture, I'm just reciting verses in my head over and over. I'm saying to myself, don't, don't be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed that by the renewing of your mind that you might prove, look at what that verse says, that which is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Oh, man. The good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's always going to be something that's going to be rejected by the world around you. So you gotta, you got to attach. you got to, you know... You draw near, God says, draw near to me that I might draw near to you. Psalm 63, David says, because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. He says, my soul follows close behind you. Oh, I love it. Follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. Attention to God's word. Avoid pagan influences. Attach yourself to God. And then lastly, cultivate affection. 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 Verse 9. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you. One man shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. This is what you should do. You should go, just, just go there, 16 verses in, in Joshua 23. You should underline in there every single time Joshua says God or Lord. And what you're going to notice is, is that every time it's your God. It's your Lord. Now, he doesn't always do that, but he does that here. And why is he doing that? Twelve times in 16 verses, it's, your, it's the Lord your God. You see, the emphasis here is on relationship. It's intimacy. God is not just God. He's your God. He's my God. There's a relationship that defines who He is and who I am to Him and who He is to me. That we're connected. You see, there's a think about, think about how this changes. Think about the difference between saying, this is a son and this is my son. This is a a wife, and this is my wife. There's a huge difference between just what something is and when it's mine, when it's yours, when, when we're intimately connected to it. It totally changes the meaning of the word. So he's ours because of his desire to give himself to us in covenant loyalty. That's why he's ours. The reason we can say the Lord our God, the Lord my God, the reason he's my God is because of 
His covenant loyalty to me. His covenant loyalty to you. That He has promised, He has covenantally promised to be loyal always to His children. And so His passion is undying. His passion is undying. Passion for us is undying. Okay, so we've got remember the past. Number two, responsibility in the present. That was the four A's. Now we've got number three. Remember responsibility results. The results in the future. Joshua says now going on from here, you need to remember what God's already done. You need to take responsibility for right now and you need to look forward, verse 12. Or else if indeed you go back and cling to the remnant of these nations... That the remnant among you and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges to your sides and thorns to your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth and you shall know in all your hearts and in your souls, that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until He has destroyed you from the good land which the Lord your God has given you when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. So this is where he leaves us with the future. You see, Joshua wants us to sort of stop and realize that there's, there's two parts to, the, to God's covenantal loyalty to us, isn't there? That he turns from promises of divine grace and favor to promises of divine discipline. You see... Joshua is reminding them that God has promised all these good things and they've all come to pass, but he's also promised discipline. And what he's saying is pay attention because they'll come to pass too. That just as sure as God will keep his promise of blessing and favor, he'll keep his promise of discipline because he's a promise-keeping God. He doesn't break any promise ever, right? Now, so, but we don't, you know, we don't think about this. We got to ask our, ourselves the question, do we really want a God who's faithful? Is that what we really want? Because everyone's running around sort of, you know, chanting the, the, the good praises of the faithfulness of God. But are they really thinking about what they're saying? Because if you want God to be utterly faithful, then you have to understand what faithfulness entails. It's utterly faithful. That means it's, he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And he's the chastiser of those who stray away from him. He will never bless disobedience. He will never, ever, ever bless anything counter to his word. 
And so he's faithful in the good things. That means he's faithful in the things. They're good, but they don't feel good. But they're good because everything that God does is good. See, his faithfulness is a two-edged sword. He's faithful in both grace and in discipline. And we should be so grateful for that and so thankful for that. You see, because you know what that does? It declares from the mountaintops how good and wonderful the God of the Bible, the God whom we serve, is. What, you know what we... Listen, I don't, know what, I don't know what you want, but I know what you need. You and me need a God who's faithful. If we don't have a God who's faithful, we have a humongous problem. Now, whether we want that or not, that's what we need. And whether we like that or not, that's what we get in the God of Scripture. So the moment God becomes the Lord of your life, His utter and complete 100% faithfulness comes to bear upon your life. Whether you like it or not. So how does that work? Well, I I personally just don't think that as a people today, we're really tuned in on the goodness of God and His faithfulness, all of His faithfulness. See, Joshua is warning them, the people of God, he's warning them, to turn away from God, that they'll have to face the consequences of His relentless love. Notice I didn't say His unbearable wrath. I could have. Because that's what it would feel like. But really, it's His relentless love. So you see, today, most of you in the room are aware that, you know, everybody seemingly, except for Rod, is all wound up in this song, The Relentless Love of God. Everybody loves it. Rod doesn't sing it. Is that because everybody loves it? I'm not sure. You have to ask him. But why is everybody wrapped up in that song? It's a good song. I like the song. But when I listen to the song, there's something inside of me that's struggling. Because the song is talking about all the things that we like to talk about. But the song's not talking about the rest of the relentless love of God. It's talking about His relentless love that will come and rescue you. It will come and, it will come and get you. But, you know, the, the song is echoing the, the passage of Scripture is Luke 15. Where Jesus tells the parable, which one of you, if you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and one of your sheep went astray, would leave the 99 and go and get the one? We love that story, but we don't read that story. We don't think about what that story says. That story says that the shepherd goes to find the lost sheep. And when he finds the sheep, what does he do to the sheep? How does he bring the sheep home? Does it say he puts the sheep on a leash and walks the sheep home? 
No. He picks the sheep up and puts the sheep on his back. And why does he do that? Because the sheep is wounded. He carries the wounded, broken sheep back. Because when you wander off, you get wounded and broken. And it parallels the 23rd Psalm. Where the shepherd who leads his sheep also chastens his sheep. Who carries a a staff. And the staff is used to discipline wayward, disobedient sheep. The relentless love of God is that He loves you and me so much that He'll do whatever it takes to bring us back to Him. And oftentimes, what it takes is pain. It takes pain to bring us back. And we should be grateful for that. You see, if it wasn't for pain, if it wasn't for His love being, what if He only loved me in grace? What if He only loved me the ways I want Him to love me? Remember our conversation about the inerrancy of Scripture? So what happens when we, when we just obey some of the Scripture? We end up obeying the Scripture that we like, the Scripture that we want to believe, the Scripture that we feel like we ought to obey. It's the same thing when we we want the relentless love of God, but we only want it to be relentless in the good things. But it doesn't work like that. He's a faithful God in every arena. And so... Whatever He promises to bless, He will bless. And whatever He promises to discipline, He will discipline. No matter what. And if you say to yourself, well, you know, I'm going to get a pass. And when you say to yourself, this is just think about this. When we get down on our knees in our dark moments, and when we scoot up close to God in our prayer closets, we say, God... Oh, God, please have mercy on me. Lord, I, I, I know I've, I've messed up. Lord, I know I shouldn't have done this. But God, please just have grace on me. In a lot of situations, you know what we're doing? We're saying, God, please violate your faithfulness. Don't be utterly faithful in this situation, God. Overlook this situation. Pretend this situation didn't happen, God. Don't be the perfect character and nature of the God you say you are. That's not who he is. He's faithful in every single thing. And so if he says, don't do this or it's going to bring harm on you, and you do this, guess what? It's going to bring harm on you. And you should be grateful for that. You should be thankful for that. You know why? You know what's the most beat down, oppressive, horrible, unhealthy thing is to be be fathered by an unpredictable father. 
To be fathered by a father who's up one day and down the next day, who one day loves you and the next day hates you, who blows up at the drop of a hat. You never know what to expect. You're walking around on eggshells. That's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God who fathers us perfectly. He's always the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. He never changes. He's utterly faithful in all the ways that he is. You can count on it. You can know. So you know when you come to the Father what to expect because he tells you. And you receive it with joy. You say, God, thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for not blessing my disobedience. Thank you for loving me too much to let me stray away, God. Thank you for coming to get me and to take my broken body and pick me up and put you on your back and carry me home. Thank you. But don't ask God not to let you be broken because he says when you wander away, you're going to be broken. Because he's faithful. His chastening is never to hurt us. Never. God didn't didn't cause the wounding of the sheep. The waywardness wounds the sheep. It's not to hurt us, it's to win us back. It's to set a reminder and a stake and anchor in our life. Oh yeah, I remember now. It's a glimpse of what life was like before you, Lord. It's a a glimpse of what happens when I'm in control. It's not good. So yes, God's love is relentless and I'm so grateful for that. So sing the song, love the song, have fun with the song, just remember. Just remember, faithfulness is more than we oftentimes understand. He's utterly and completely faithful. He is not just a good father. He's a good, good father. He's good in every way and in everything. And you don't have to walk on eggshells. Some of you in this room, you grew up and you had a really good father. And you're thankful. It's rare, but you're thankful. And you know what you did? Without even understanding it. When you did wrong, and you knew you did wrong, and you knew he's going to find out, and you'd come home, and you know what you're going to get when you come home. And you just take it. Because you know you deserve it. And then you move on. And you've spent, you, you spent all of your adult life looking back and saying, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me a good earthly father who disciplined me and taught me and didn't just let me go. Wasn't trying to be my friend. Right? And then there's most of us in the room. And our testimony is, you know what was wrong with our childhood is that we didn't have a good, consistent father to discipline us. And we wanted that. And we didn't understand it. And what seemed at times like so much freedom to run and to do the things that we wanted to do and get away with things, and yet looking back, we regret and think, would have been so much better if I would have had a a father to discipline me. You have that in God. 
That's the kind of father he is. Take it from someone who grew up fatherless. Man, he will fill that void and so much more. My father is faithful. And I'm so very thankful. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a faithful God. And a faithful.